If you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to go with me to the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. Two weeks ago we looked at verses 1 through 3. Today we're going to look at verse 4 through verse 7. I want to talk this morning on the divine intervention. The divine intervention. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through verse 7. It'll be on the screen. It's on your handout. Let's look beginning at verse number 4. Paul writing, he says, But God, who was rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Some of the greatest words in all the Bible. The divine intervention. Father, today I pray that you would speak through me. Touch my mind that I can think clearly. Touch my lips that I can speak precisely what needs to be spoken. Help me to say no more or no less than what you'd have me to say. And I ask today that you'd open the ears of the people to hear, open the hearts of the people to receive. And when we leave this place today, may we be able to say that it's been good to be in your house. May we be able to say that we have heard from you. And Father, for all you do, for all you accomplish, we'll give you praise and honor and glory for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord this morning. The divine... Intervention. This is week 12 in our series in the book of Ephesians. But I don't know how much TV you watch, but if you watch any TV, especially if you have the A&D channel, there is a reality series. And I don't really know how much reality there is to it. You can't tell much these days. But there is a reality series called Intervention. The basic premise of the show is that it follows the life of an addict. And by the end of that show, they are confronted by family and friends. And it's called an intervention. During the show, you can see what the addict does to try to help their addiction as far as what they're willing to go to get their drugs and supply their addiction. They'll take from family members. They'll sell their stuff to try to get the money to help their addiction and it actually shows them using drugs, which I don't really know how legal that can be, putting it on TV. But at the end, family and friends come together and there's an interventionist and they try to help this person who's addicted to some kind of Substance, whether it be alcohol, whether it be heroin, or some other kind of opioid. But during the intervention, the addict is given an ultimatum. Either they can undergo a 90-day all-expenses-paid treatment plan at a rehabilitation facility, or they risk losing contact, income, or privileges from their relatives and friends. That's what it comes down to. 
The goal of the intervention is for the addicted person to listen and to accept help. At times, the intervention is successful and the addict goes into treatment. They go into rehabilitation and they are able to find deliverance and relief from their addiction. But at times, the one that's addicted, immediately as soon as they walk in the room and they see their family and they see their friends, they know what's about to happen and they turn around and walk out. They're so bound, they're so caught up in their addiction, they don't want to be free and they refuse help. Some walk in the room and they sit down and they listen to their family, they listen to their friends, they they see the tears that their family members shed for them and yet some of them still refuse treatment. They still refuse help. And you may be thinking this morning, preacher, what does that have to do with the passage we read this morning? Well, two weeks ago we looked at verses 1 through 3 and we saw that without Christ, a person is dead spiritually. They're disobedient. They're led around by Satan. They are depraved. And they're doomed. They're children of wrath. Let me say it this way. Without Christ, people are helpless. They are hopeless. And they need an intervention. You see, the thing is, people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol or some other substance, you can have an intervention for them, but unless they have the willingness to help themselves, you can't free them. But God can intervene into the life of a sinner and change them. And the thing is, before we met Jesus, we were on our way to hell, bound by sin and dead and could not rescue ourselves and do anything to change our condition. But God divinely intervened. And so let me just ask you this morning, just by way of introduction, where would you be had God not stepped into your life? Where would you be had God not intervened? You see, our condition before Jesus was a miserable condition. We were wicked and we were wretched, but God stepped in. And that's what Paul said in verse 4. He said, but God. In my opinion, two of the greatest words in all of the Bible. But God. We were dead, disobedient, children of wrath, but God. I'm thankful for those two words. But God. I'm hopeless, on my way to hell. But God, Brother Tommy. I needed those two words. You needed those two words. I had no hope. I was alienated from God, cut off from Him, and had no way to change my life. But God. One commentator said those two words summarize the gospel in a nutshell. But God. 
you look at those two words, it shows us who initiates salvation. You see, salvation begins with God, not us. You see, the intervention that we need doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. You see, we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't rescue ourselves. We were drowning in sin, going under, and couldn't do anything but God stepped in. So I asked you again, where would you be if God had not stepped in? Some of you wouldn't be alive today if God hadn't intervened. Some of you would be addicted to drugs or other substances if God had not intervened. We would still be living the ways of this world had God not intervened. You see, we are what we are today because of God's intervention. We couldn't reach up to Him, so He reached down to us. We wouldn't seek Him, so He sought us. We couldn't find Him, so He found us. We couldn't rescue ourselves, so He rescued us. The only reason we came to God was because He first came to us. John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. 1 John 4, 19. He says this, We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The only reason we're here and we know him is because of those two words, but God. And so with that as an introduction, I want to look at four questions today as we talk about the divine intervention. Number one, why did God intervene? Why did God intervene? Let me give you two things. Number one, He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. That word rich refers to an overabundance, that which is without measure, something that is unlimited. This means that God has a measureless, unlimited supply of mercy. You see, God has an inexhaustible storehouse of mercy. His mercy will never cease. His mercy will never run dry. His mercy will never run out. That's why the writer of Lamentation says, His mercies are new every morning. That's why David in Psalm 23 says, His goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of our lives. You see, we serve a God who was rich in mercy that when we were lost and when we were helpless and when we were dead and on our way to hell, He was rich in mercy. The word mercy, it refers to goodness or kindness towards those who are miserable or afflicted, coupled with a desire to help them. Jesus walked this earth, and you'll find that many times it says He was moved with compassion. That's the idea of mercy. Being moved with compassion, having loving kindness towards somebody, and wanting to do something to meet their need. You see, mercy has the idea of not receiving what you deserve. And so God, in His mercy, He turns away His wrath from those who deserve wrath. And instead, He gives forgiveness. And He gives salvation. 
You see, we were children of wrath and we deserved the punishment and judgment of God. But Him being rich in mercy turned away His wrath and turned away His punishment. But not only was He merciful, Paul says, He loved us. In fact, Paul referred to it as His great love wherewith He loved us. I thank God for His mercy, but I thank God that He's loving. In fact, 1 John tells us that God is love. That's who He is. It's not just what He does, but it's who He is. That is a great characteristic of God, that He is love. The word love is the word agape. It refers to a selfless and sacrificial love. It's a love that goes so far that it loves a person even if he doesn't deserve to be loved. It's a love that goes so far that it loves the person who is unworthy of being loved. It's a love that goes so far that it's compelled to sacrifice itself for its enemies. You see, God loved you and He loved me when we were unlovable. He loved us when we were unworthy of His love. You see, there was nothing in us that was of value. There was nothing in us that deserved the love of God. But He loved us in such a way that He sent His only begotten Son to die for our sins. That's why one of the greatest verses in all the Bible is John three sixteen. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God didn't just say, I love you. God showed that He loved us. One commentator, David Guzik, in his commentary said this, We give Him no reason to love us, yet in the greatness of His love, He loves us with that great love anyway. We give Him no reason to love us, yet in the greatness of His love, He loves us with that great love anyway. You see, God could have chosen to destroy all of humanity because of sin, but instead He chose to show mercy and love. That's why God intervened. He's merciful and He's loving. He could have let all of us go to hell. But He's rich in mercy and He's full of love. Hallelujah. But secondly, when did God intervene? When did He intervene? Notice that Paul tells us in verse 5, even when we were dead in but God who was rich in mercy for His great love or with He loved us even when we were dead in sin. You know what that tells me? God didn't wait on you and me to improve our condition before He loved us. He didn't wait until we reformed our ways. He didn't wait until we changed our behavior. He didn't wait until we somehow got better. He set His love on us and He was merciful to us while we were still dead in sin, while we were still in rebellion, while we were still doing our own thing. He loved us in spite of our wickedness. Wow. You see, He reached down to us when He, when he knew that we could not and would not reach up to Him. Listen to me. 
He didn't require us to be good enough before He reached down to save us. Let me say that again. He didn't require us to be good enough before He reached down to save us. He loved us when we were dead and rebellious. And let me just say this. If He loved you when you were dead and rebellious, how much more do you think He loves you now? Now that you're His child, what makes you think He's going to love you less? If you're His child and sometimes become a little disobedient, what makes you think He's going to love you less now that you belong to Him if He loved you when you were His enemy? Because that's how some people live their Christian life. They live in fear that if I somehow mess up, God's not going to like me, God's not going to love me, and God's just going to somehow punish me. Listen, if He loved you while you were an enemy and rebellious, now that you're His, He's still going to love you. You can't do anything to make Him love you less, and you can't do anything to make Him love you more. He loves you. Amen. And if we could ever just grab hold of that, that God loves you. Loves me on my good days. He loves me on my bad days. He loves me when I check all the boxes and get it right. And He loves me when I can't check a box at all. He loves me. I know that sounds so elementary and so simple. That's what the Bible says. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me. That change your life. Grab hold of the fact that God loves you. But while we were dead in sin, He loved us. Because some people have the idea, well, I've got to get my act together before God loves me. Even when we were dead in sin, He loved and He was merciful. Romans 5, 8 says it this way. But God commended, or God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for His enemies. Why? Because God was demonstrating His love. God intervened while we were lost, while we were dead, while we had no hope. That's when He intervened. Hear me, that there was nothing in us worth saving other than the fact that we've been created in the image and likeness of God, but we were lost and hopeless. But because God is loving, because God is merciful, and because God is gracious, He intervened. I want you to hear me very well what I'm about to say. You weren't saved because you deserved it. You were saved because God is gracious and merciful. Salvation isn't something that God owes us. It's a gift to people who don't deserve it. That's why Paul adds at the end of verse 5, by grace you are saved. In fact, let me just throw this in here. Notice he says by grace you're saved. He didn't say by God's love you're saved. It's by God's grace we're saved. You see, it's not enough for God to love us for us to be saved. We need God's grace. 
His unmerited favor. Giving us what we don't deserve. So, that's when God intervened. When we were dead in sin. But number three, what did God do when He intervened? When God stepped into your life, when God stepped into my life, let me put it this way, when God butted in, I'm thankful He butted in. What did He do? Number one, He gave us life. Isn't that what Paul says? Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He quickened us. The word quickened means to make alive. You see, when God saved us, He brought us out of spiritual death. He imparted to us the very resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us and He resurrects us. He gives us spiritual life. Instantly we're born again. We're no longer alienated and cut off from the life of God. We become a new creature in Christ. For the first time we can understand spiritual truth and desire spiritual things. We're delivered from spiritual death, spiritual deception, spiritual depravity, and spiritual doom. We're given life and life more abundantly. That's what happens when God intervenes in your life. He gives you life. He gives you resurrection. You see, we were dead. And normally with a dead person, you put them in a tomb. You bury them. But God says, I'm going to resurrect you. And that's what He does. He calls us out and gives us life. But secondly, He gave us a lift. He gave us a lift. Paul says, God hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only did He resurrect us, He raised us up. Let me say it this way. God didn't raise us from the graveyard to stay in the graveyard. When God, when Jesus called Lazarus to come forth, the Bible says he came out of the tomb and he was still bound hand and foot and it told him, take the grave clothes off of him. You see, when God resurrects you from the grave, he don't intend for the grave clothes to stay on you. He wants to raise you up and give you new life and give you new liberty so you can walk in newness of life as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6. And that's why it says we've been made to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we've been raised up. That's our position now. We're in the earth, but we're no longer belong to the earth. You see, God resurrected us. And He raised us up so that we can share in His glory. You see, because of our union with Christ, we're already seen as delivered from this present world and seated in Christ in heaven. Even though physically we're on this earth, spiritually, we're in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, we have a new place for living. A new arena of existence. Philippians 3 talks about our citizenship being in heaven. You see, even though we haven't been to heaven yet, we're already known there, Brother Tommy. They know who I am in heaven. And they know who you are in heaven. Why? Because we've been made to sit in heavenly places in Christ 
Jesus. You know what that means? That means when God the Father looks over at Jesus, He sees you and He sees me. Why? Because in the mind of God, we're already there. Now see, for us, we think it's always future tense. It's all about Jesus coming back and us going to heaven. But when you read it, it's past tense. He hath made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ. God sees it as done. Wow. Talk about a blessing. If God sees it, let me, let me just take a moment right here. If, if God sees it as done, what am I going to do to undo it? If I'm already there, how am I going to revoke it? I'm in Christ. God sees me there. That means God's got a purpose. God's got a plan. And God's going to fulfill it. Amen. That's what God did. He gave me life and He gave me a live. I might be walking through this sin-cursed world, but I'm already on my way to the final destination. But I'm as good as already there because I'm in Christ. Blow your mind, won't it? Know that the angels know us already in heaven. That we're in Christ and already known in heaven. In fact, I believe that when we get to heaven, God's going to show us off to the angels of heaven. Look what Jesus, my son, purchased. Some of you are going to say, well, I, I, I don't believe that preacher. Well, look at my next point. What was the purpose of God's intervention? To demonstrate God's grace. Why did God intervene? What was the reasoning behind it? It was to demonstrate His grace. You see, we're to be trophies of grace. Look at verse 7 again. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know what Paul is saying? God's going to show us off. God's going to put us on display. That's what the word show means. It means to display. You have an artist who paints portraits on the canvas and he displays those canvases to show off his artwork. That's what it means to show. God's going to put us on display. I mean, has ever been to a car show? People fix up their old cars and they have a car show to show off their old cars. Well, listen, God's going to have a saint show. He's going to show us off and say, look what my grace did. And now what it says? That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. And guess what? It's going to take all of eternity to do it. here's the thing, angels, they don't have to worry about God's grace. They were created beings. But we were
are sin-cursed, hell-bound. And God in His grace saved us. And for all eternity, God's going to get to demonstrate His grace to us and to the angels of heaven. Let me just say this while we're on this earth. God's grace ought to be demonstrated through us to a lost world. What God has done for us, it ought to be on display to people around us who do not know Him. Amen? Because here's the thing. God didn't intervene in our lives simply to forgive our sin and take us to heaven. Understand that. God's purpose in our redemption wasn't simply to rescue us from hell. Listen, I'm sorry. Listen, that's a great thing to be rescued from hell. But that's simply not the only reason why God intervened in your life. His ultimate purpose in our salvation is that for all eternity, we as the people of God, we as the church of God, might glorify His grace. That's why we exist. Let me give you some verses. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. Ephesians 1, 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. We're supposed to what? To the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12 of chapter 1. That we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. And then verse 14 which is the earnest of our inheritance, talking about the Holy Spirit and us being sealed. He's saying the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession through the praise of His glory. You and I were saved. God intervened. It's for other people to see God's grace and for Him to be glorified. But hear what I'm about to say well. When we make much of ourselves and little of Him, people will not see His grace and He'll not be glorified. When you talk about what you do rather than what He did, they don't see God's grace and God gets no glory. That's why often when I preach, the grace of God comes up because I want to make much of Him and little of me. And so you, in your witnessing, in your living, you need to demonstrate and display the grace of God. When somebody asks you what happened to you in your testimony, you need to talk about what God did and not what you're doing. It's about what He did. It's not about how much you're praying, how much you're reading your Bible, how much you're fasting, how much you're going to church. It's about what God did. How He rescued your life. How He intervened. You see, others should look at us and say, the grace of God's unbelievable. They should look at us and say, man, look at how God loves them. They should look at you and me and say, look at what God's done in their life. Especially people who knew you before salvation. They should look and say, man, look at what a change God made. I want to ask you, is that what others are saying about your life? 
Or do they look at you and say, I don't want the Jesus that they serve? If people are looking at your life and saying, I don't want the God they serve, I don't want the Jesus they serve, hear me well, you might be giving the wrong impression of Jesus. Because I read in my Bible in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that He was a friend of sinners and lost people like being around my Savior. But yet we're living in a day where lost people don't seem to be like to be around His kids too much. And that's a bad reflection on our Savior. When they wanted to be around Him but don't want to be around us. What does that say? They need to see Him in us. That means sometimes you may have to let personal convictions you have just not be so vocal about them. Listen, I'm not talking about condoning sin. You can accept somebody without approving their lifestyle. You can be loving without being approving. You can engage people that are different than you. I want us to make a difference. Because God's made a difference in our lives. That's what He's called us to. Amen. He's made a difference in us and now we should make a difference in the world. Would you stand with me? We were dead in sin, but God intervened. We were rebellious. God intervened. See, God could have left us spiritually dead. He could have left us in bondage to our sin. But He didn't. He didn't save us because of, but rather in spite of what He saw in us. So I ask you again, where would you be if not for God's divine intervention? I want you to take just a moment as we close. Think about what God's done for you. Think about where you were when God found you. Think about where He brought you from. Think about the mess you were in. And when you think about what God's done for you, it should fill you with gratitude. It should fill you with praise. God stepped into your life when He did. It was not chance. It was not luck. It was not the stars aligning at the right moment. But you had an appointment with God. And God intervened. And He did for you what you could not do for yourself. That Cause you to wake up every day and praise Him. So can we take a moment and thank Him for what He's done?